Hello and welcome everyone to the first episode of this podcast channel. My name is Abdul Hakim and I will be your host this evening. I am joined by Khairoon, a first year in university at uh, McMaster, hoping to one day work in addressing human rights issue. Um, welcome, welcome to the virtual podcast for our listeners. Thank you very much, Abdullah, for having me. I am really excited for the content that we will be covering today, and I hope that after listening to this podcast, our viewers may walk away from it with a new perspective. Agreed. In this exciting episode, we will delve into the world of public health in order to try and understand the underlying factors of inequality in American healthcare and access to medicine. What makes some people more prone to diseases than other? Why do black people have lower life expectancy? I mean, um, during the pandemic, we've seen black individuals in proportionally infected with COVID-19 with higher fatalities. What is the cause of all these significant inequalities? And most importantly, how do we address them all? All this and more will be addressed tonight, so stay tuned, everyone. All right, Harun. So, um, as you know, this is kind of a broad topic. So, where do you um, where do you think we should begin? Like, what is your take on the roots of racism in healthcare and inequalities? Um, okay, well, Abdul, I guess it makes sense, like you say, to kind of start from the beginning, sort of, and to properly describe how inequalities have been structurally perpetrated. We need to define a few key terms, definitions, and concepts. One of the first ways in which racism was justified and later further legitimized was through cultural violence. A famous example of both cultural and later structural violence took place as a result of scientific racism. Now, the term scientific racism basically entails the practice of medical researchers, doctors, professionals performing various experiments and studies that only worked in reinforcing racist hierarchies and notions. Um, so, for example, we have Swedish botanist Carl Linnaeus, who is largely known for his scientific work in taxonomy and classification and is largely viewed as the founder of scientific racism. In his work, Linnaeus neatly classified four racial categories, which were Africanus, Americanus, Asiaticus, and Europeans. Through these classifications, Linnaeus further distinguished race and subspecies between people beyond color to behavioral traits and characteristics, placing Europeans as the prime and best racial class of humans. Under his classification, for example, Africans uh, were behaviorally determined to be lazy, unemotional, and sly, while Europeans, on the other hand, were wise and inventors. If we move forward to the 1800s, other scientists had further expounded on Linnaeus's work, such as American doctor Samuel George Morton, who performed craniometry experiments to compare the cranial capabilities of scales of um, skulls uh, based on different races. So, in this way, the larger the skull size, the higher the supposedly IQ level. With Morton, he had collected and measured over 1,000 skulls, and similarly concluded that African Americans to be the lowest IQ. The only issue, besides the obvious moral and ethical concerns, is that Morton's, issue, Morton's experiment, majority of the skulls were used from women and sometimes even children. Other movements followed, such as the eugenics movement, and these are often founded within scientific racism in the establishment of further creating the desired uh, race based on superiority. So um, this is just one way in which cultural violence may actually be um, sort of integrated within society and kind of justified by people who are in officials. So we think of doctors and medical researchers as such. Often, black people and minorities are, are used to sort of further create and um, 
create this desired race um, based on superiority. So these uh, so majority of people from these groups are targeted historically for these scientific and medical experiments and studies that were done are often skewed and result in um, in actual I guess physical um, effects which we could see so for example sterilization is one way in which scientific racism um, which is also like a form of cultural violence was used to justify sterilization of indigenous people um, and another example that comes to mind would be the Tuskegee syphilis study. And this study was a study that was sponsored by the U.S. Department of Public Health. The study actually ran between 1932 all the way up to 1972 in America. Can you believe that? My, 40 years of a of that? Wow, that's a long time. Yeah, I mean, for 40 years, black men were suffering from syphilis in Alabama, and they were recruited and referred by trusted doctors and individuals to take part of a medical study. But here's the thing. The men were not told that they had syphilis or that they were part of a study. In this way, scientists believed that they could kind of observe the effects that syphilis might have that would um, perpetually be different between black and white individuals. And as they became uh, kind of more observed and more monitored, obviously the symptoms had also become worse as a result. And many of the scientists and researchers prevented their studies from receiving proper treatment. And I'm using the word studies and patients um, in this uh, category, but they were not really, of course, um, classified as that because they did not know that they were even part of anything. They thought they were just visiting a doctor. And um, often the excuse that they were told was that they had but blood, uh, bad blood, um, which is just a common uh, phrase at the time for kind of saying that you're anemic. Um, and then these patients, they had begun to develop over time symptoms such as fever, hair loss, weight, blindness, and eventually death. Um, after the study, there's an estimated 128 deaths of black people who had died as a result of the Tuskegee syphilis study. And really in this example, we can see how state officials and medical authorities could be active participants in causing harm uh, systemically that is basically um, used to justify existing racial um, kind of ideas. And this is how, this is one way in which cultural violence may lead to systemic violence and um, yeah, that's one of them. Um, so like today, most scholars would agree that race is a cultural construct and that there is no link between race and biology. However, in the past, scientific racism worked on developing a scientific framework per se, like as I said before, to justify these racist ideals. And these kind of seep into the present as we can see through other forms, such as structural racism, structural violence, um, and they perpetrate inequality, so in different ways. So we could talk about health, education, and society. Of course, this podcast will mostly focus on the effects um, in healthcare. Um, so these racist ideals um, over time gained a sort of new light or traction. And um, as I could, as I was saying before, most most of these uh, racist ideals that stemmed or as a result of cultural violence, they were, they had eventually led to real policies, real legal um, kind of rulings as well, and laws 
towards um, or rather against black communities and other marginalized minorities. And some of these effects, we're still dealing with them in the present. Um, Yeah, for sure. I mean, one way um, that scientific racism is used uh, as justification, for example, for race, racial abilities, and biology might be even beyond healthcare. So if we consider, um, for example, we often hear, maybe you hear in the news, maybe you read on um, on an article or something, um, and basically race being used to justify genetic traits and ability. So like you could have a fast runner or an athlete, and most likely someone um, might think or like might say something like, oh, um, a generalization that all black people are, ba- are good basketball players or good athletes, um, or like um, similar stereotypes with Asian people. Um, and it really becomes problematic when we have these generalizations and they lead to the discourse between race, ability, and biology. And the effects, as I mentioned before, of race and racism are real despite race being a cultural contract, uh, con- a construct. Um, and these really have shaped the experience of black and minority individuals. And as I mentioned before, there's lots of different ways in which these manifest in the present. Wow, I never considered just how in-depth the debate between race and biology extends. I think it's quite harrowing to consider the connection between historic justification and how these may be playing a role in society today. Okay, so you've explained scientific racism and briefly mentioned structural violence. I'm still curious as to how this relates and impacts medicine and healthcare for black communities in the present. Um, that's a great question, Abdul. And to begin with, um, we can first discuss health, um, and as you mentioned, like the health inequalities of the present, and um, yeah, I could further expound upon structural uh, violence and racism. Um, in order to do this, I'm first going to just briefly refer to the myth of meritocracy, which is basically entails that the idea that everything we achieve earn and the circumstances that we are living in and found ourselves in are only attained through uh, merit. Mm -hmm. This is a myth. So how is this a myth? (laughs) Well, by having such an understanding, we miss out on the larger factors that play a role in a person's circumstances besides the individual. So sort of the larger structure. To explain, I'll refer back to Johann Galtung, who coined the concept of structural violence and he basically mentioned or stated in his um, study that violence perpetrates within a society through three main ways. So cultural violence, which may be viewed, for example, before uh, through scientific racism. Uh, Structural violence um, is basically the tools that structure and society use to then justify and kind of lead to direct violence. Um, According to Galtung, structural violence may be defined as the structural elements that maintain and propagate inequality in various ways. So these ways are essentially ingrained and built within our society, um, so our social, political, and economic systems. And these may range from preventing access to resources and requirements from certain groups through set barriers in place. Yeah. So as I was stating um, before, race plays a large role in structural violence as a result of cultural violence and racism as well. 
Uh, anthropologist Paul Farmer's definition of racism, it allows us to kind of understand the connection between structural violence and race. So he defines racism as a structural mechanism in place that causes harm to a certain groups or individuals. Um, so an example of the present might be even closer than we think. So with the onset of the pandemic, we have seen a large amount of inequality that may be attributed to structural violence. For example, if we consider various aspects of inequality in COVID-19 testing, uh, a study stated in June 2020, if I have that right, that about between the 94,780 COVID-19 tests administered by that time, only about 4,854 of those were administered to black Americans in contrast to 50,000 to white Americans. Other studies had shown during the peak of the pandemic that per every 100,000 deaths, um, 97.9 were African Americans, in contrast to a fatality rate of only 46.6 for white Americans. That is very um, significant. Uh, significant. You would think that um, such an important issue would be more spoken of within society. Uh, so, Khairun, in in what ways you think structural violence has played a role for the disparity in impacts of COVID-19 among black communities? What's your thoughts on this? Um, okay, so one of the most important concepts that we need to understand is that both cultural and structural violence operate together. So as I mentioned, these forms of violence are often normalized within a society. So everyone plays a role. In COVID-19, if we consider some of the issues within the American healthcare system overall, these problems would have only been exasperated by the pandemic, which has kind of shown us the ways in which structural violence um, inflicts very real effects. So we consider one of the main structural barriers to healthcare, um, poverty. So with the capitalist system that exists, the few gain an abundance of wealth at the expense of the many. Like the top 1%? Yeah, exactly. So in this system, the majority of people living through poverty have to continue working at minimum wages and most likely continue on living uh, from paycheck to paycheck their entire lives. Of course, coupled with the previous cultural violence that takes place, black people and women um, are disadvantaged in terms of referral for jobs, for example, and other racism experienced in daily life. Of course, we must also consider, for example, um, Chimanda Ngozi, her kind of theory on intersectionality. So the experiences that people um, experience from race and these structural barriers, they differ and they're more intersectional in that different people with different identities might have different um, impacts. Um, so through poverty and other factors, children would most likely be raised within the same system. So if we have a result of a poverty cycle that is never ending, it really will not without intervention. For COVID-19, um, the for minority people, for example, um, black individuals, they would be more likely to be working in what we refer to as frontline jobs. So these would include perhaps um, cashiers, clerks, drivers, uh, drivers, um, nurses. And these uh, frontline workers basically did not get to experience work from home transitions like other jobs and the safety that comes with it. Most had no choice but to continue working in um, these jobs and despite the conditions, leaving them more exposed to the airborne um, nature of the virus. And a lack of proper government support and social systems would mean that some may still need to work while being sick.
Um, and moreover, um, other uh, living conditions, for example, with larger family members, smaller spaces. Um, so, of course, this might be a result of absurdly high rent and housing prices that may reduce the efficacy of uh, preventative measures such as quarantine. Um, in this way, if you have like a large number of people living in a smaller um, area, there are a larger number um, of infection rates would most likely occur. Um, in the U.S., uh, for example, another way is that African Americans, they make up 40% of the country's homeless population, despite only being 13% of the total population. In this case, being homeless has left many black individuals vulnerable to the spread of the virus and the lack of critical needs that are not being met uh, would further feed into the causes and kind of increase transmission rates. Another might be through prisons and jail systems with the largest prison population in the world situated in, in the U United States. Majority of those who are behind bars are African Americans. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So during the pandemic, we saw a lot of outbreaks happen due to the environment of prisons, um, contact as well as poor quarantine and sanitation. We also need to consider, moving on, the locations and the frequency of testing centers. So at the beginning of the pandemic, we saw that most testing centers in the U.S. were located, for example, in suburban or like largely uh, densely populated areas. And there are even reports that white Americans had more access to tests and test kits, which may have played a role in the underrepresentation in testing. Of course, with the nature of the pandemic, the less people that are testing, the greater number of the spread. So this sort of disadvantages um, uh, black and other minority individuals whom these social um, structures, social, um, uh, were not like built for them to easily be accessible. And when you see things like, for example, increase in COVID numbers or like rise in cases, we need to consider the other factors that are also playing a role here. My, so basically cultural violence through your example of scientific racism in the past works in the present as well through the justification of health inequality. Um, so this inequality is often endorsed by society through the normalization of various notions on ability, race, and superior superiority that reflect in structural violence. Is that what you're, you're going on? Exactly. I'm glad you got it. Um, so <laughs> it operates basically we need to understand that structural violence operates in many many different ways so in healthcare is really only just one of them is there anything we can do about it what implications does cultural and structural violence have towards the future um well the short and really idealistic answer is yes i believe we can do something about this but really it's not easy Cultural violence um, plays out in various ways, such as the scientific racism example I gave earlier. And it's much more than systemic, but rather it's deeply rooted within our ideals and notions of race and racism. So in a way, by dehumanizing um, black individuals, a barrier is created that further separates and justifies systemic um, ideals and notions um, that lead to systemic um, or structural violence. And um, these, these, this normalization, it makes it seem right. So, for example, within uh, structural uh, boundaries, so within the law, if we look at employing, uh, employment, if we look at policing and other areas, um, one of the first ways which I think we can do to help is to, first of all, address cultural and structural violence in acknowledging the role 
that every person plays within the structural system by both accepting by accepting um, the fact that many of us remain quiet and oblivious to such injustices and that by doing so we are then complicit actors. Um, so another way is through action and the word action uh, I think it means different things to different people. Um, one of the most common ways which might come to your mind might be like for example in protesting like you're out there on the ground protesting against um, so a cause that you're kind of passionate about and certainly that's one way which you could do it um, other forms of activism might be a great way um, to be used and so, to sort of channel this energy into um, kind of lobbying politicians in a way to improve on the structural policies that do not address um, racial inequality in medicine so these policies need to be reformed to focus not only on fixing um, issues once they've already happened, but preventing structural injustices that we have seen um, earlier in this podcast. Um, and yeah, there's many different ways, but one of the most important, I cannot stress how important it is, is to, is to kind of like keep an open mind, keep an open eye and kind of question. Question what you see, question what you what, what's surrounding and pay more attention to what's going on um, besides just like the individual level and towards like the community level as well. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's for sure. I know it sounds cliche, but I think we can te- we can all make a difference if enough pressure is applied in the right ways. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, okay. So once again, thank you for having, coming here in this podcast. It looks like time is up and it, we got to wrap this up. Any last words to the viewers? Hyrule? Um, I guess I'll leave it at this. As Martin Luther King once said, of all forms of inequality, injustice in health is the most shocking and inhuman. Alrighty, folks, that is a wrap. I would like to thank our guest, Hyrule, for coming on to the show and explaining the different ways in which... Uh, cultural in spending in the different ways in which cultural and structural violence manifests and costs lives in medicine certainly an issue that we need to do more than think about but also act upon as well and that is it see ya folks <laughs>